Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you might know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. I'd like to give a big thank you to our steadily growing group of listeners. We'd be very grateful if you'd tell your friends and colleagues about the i3 podcast. Thanks for your support. You can follow us on Twitter at i3invest and at market underscore fox. My guest on this episode probably needs no introduction. Rob Arnott. Rob is the founder and chairman of the board of Research Affiliates. Rob and the Research Affiliates team are well known for their contribution to smart beta, factor investing and asset allocation. They are prolific authors writing thought-provoking research on a wide range of topics. I'm a big fan of Research Affiliates' work on asset allocation. I've always made it a point to review their long-term asset allocation forecast each month for several years now. It's a fantastic resource. I have so many questions that I can't wait to ask Rob. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Rob to the podcast. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a privilege being here. So as is customary on the podcast, we usually ask our guests how they got started in the investment business. Where did it all start for you? Well... When I was in high school, I was um, debating going into investments with an eye towards using computers for investment management or going into astrophysics, which astronomy has been a a passion of mine also uh, ever since then. But uh, I quickly realized in college that while I was pretty good in math, I was not good enough to do world-class astrophysics. But the notion of using mathematical tools in investing was still new enough that I could do work that hadn't been done before. And so I thought, what fun, let me go down this path. And it's worked out okay. So were you one of those young people that uh, had purchased their first share by the time they were 12? Or how did My the father start? bought me one share of Texaco stock for my eighth birthday. And I watched it go up in the eighth or down a quarter or whatever, day by day with fascination for a couple of years. Um, So short answer is yes. So were you always a quant? Absolutely. Um, The notion of using math in investing was central to what I wanted to do. It was reinforced by the fact that so much of investing back in the 
sixties uh, and seventies was based on um, intuition, which is notoriously unreliable, and um, subjective judgment, which is almost always clouded by emotion. And so the notion of using discipline, using formulas, and using formulas doesn't mean um, following the numbers wherever they lead. It means looking at the fundamentals but doing it in a disciplined way. Uh, that's been central to what I've been doing ever since. So in those early days, was a quantitative approach somewhat unusual? It was extremely unusual. The term quant hadn't been coined. The term quantitative investing hadn't been coined. Uh, so I was a quant before, there, before the word quant existed. Okay, that's interesting. So it would be good to get your thoughts on what the early days of quant look like because today it seems to be almost ubiquitous. There's quant research everywhere and we talk about factors and factor exposures like it's a natural part of the investing language. Exactly. But what was it like before any of this had been uh, invented or publicized? Well, firstly, it was easier to add value back then. Um, easier to add value in the sense that very, very simple uh, tools very simple metrics could be used and would add good value. Um, uh, Bar Rosenberg, back around 1980, was asked the question, um, what is quantitative investing? And his response was, about 400 basis points of value add. <laughs> Pretty good answer. Um, well, it's not that simple anymore. And, and today it's quants competing against quants. A lot of quants just go wherever the numbers lead them without having uh, any core views, any uh, core philosophy on how markets ought to work. Um, and so they're engaged in performance chasing without even realizing that they're performance chasing. They're going wherever the numbers lead them, which often is in the direction of what has worked well in the past and is now priced to no longer work well. So there are some bad quant products out there along with some good ones. I guess you could say the same thing about investing in general. I guess. Absolutely. It's definitely a mixed bag. So we'll get on to the topic of uh, some of the issues with quant strategies a little later. But before we do, while we're still talking about your background, who were some of your early influences and mentors? Um, too many to name, but some of the most influential would have been Fisher Black, he, he and I became friends in the, oh, six or seven years before he died. Peter Bernstein, who was a dear friend for over 20 years. Bob Lovell, the head of investments at Kremen Forster Insurance, who was my boss briefly. Marty Leibowitz, now at Morgan Stanley, then at Solomon Brothers, and uh, also my boss briefly. So those are just a few. Um, uh, I almost forgot to mention Harry Markowitz. He's um, not only a legend in, in the industry, but he's also a mensch. He's a really, really nice guy. It's great that you had the opportunity to, uh, to work with such interesting people. What were some of the ways in which you think they helped you? Probably the most important way, and I think this is a common denominator for all of those relationships was to approach the world with a healthy blend of curiosity and skepticism. What seems straightforward and seems to be the way the world works 
sometimes it doesn't work that way. Uh, one of the things I love to do, and this is probably central to my success over the years, is if there's an element of conventional wisdom where everybody knows that thus and such is true, I'll often ask the question, well, has anyone tested it? And shockingly often, the answer is no, nobody's tested it. And so I test it, and if it turns out to be true, great. If it turns out not to be true, I'll publish a paper which will turn out to be massively con controversial and will enrage a few people, but uh, all I'm doing is testing and seeing if conventional wisdom is right. Often it's not. We'll get on to some of those papers a little later. You've, uh, you've certainly stirred up a few questions in some areas of the quant world, particularly with your papers on, on factors and their efficacy going forward. Um, one last question about your background, though, before we move on. What lessons did you have to learn the hard way when you were starting out? Oh, there are too many to list once again. One of those lessons is that conventional wisdom is often wrong. Another is when you do research and go where the research leads you and publish ideas that are contrary to what most people believe, be ready, be braced for a reaction. And it took me a long time to understand why some of my papers got so many people angry um, until I realized, you know, if you've got an element of conventional wisdom and you've built your career on that, you've devoted your career to pursuing that idea, and somebody comes along and says, hey, this isn't correct, it doesn't work, you're likely to be angry. And um, once I came to terms with that, all of a sudden it got a lot easier to uh, not worry about the fact that some folks got upset. Have you learned any tips along the way on how to soften that reaction, or there's not much you can do about it? Well, there's not a lot you can do about it, but you can soften the reaction a bit by just saying, look, I'm not trying to create a problem here. I'm just pointing out what our research suggests. And if our research is wrong, I'm perfectly happy to see somebody publish a paper that says we're wrong. Uh, doesn't happen often. Okay. So with that segue, we'll chat with you about some of your papers. Now, I've, I've picked out three of your classic papers. I'd consider them to be my favorites and three of your more recent papers. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with the classics. Now, I'll read the title of the paper and then I'll leave it to you to give us a brief introduction on what the paper is about and why you think it matters and then we'll, we'll take it from there. So the first paper is Surprise, Higher Dividends Equal Higher Earnings Growth. This one was a surprise to the marketplace and um, it was a paper that I wrote with Cliff Asnes. Um, in this work, we tested the conventional wisdom that when uh, payout ratios are low, that the marketplace is reinvesting a lot of the income and sowing seeds for faster future growth. So you don't get that much in dividends, but you do get it on the back end in subsequent growth. That's the conventional wisdom. We went back and tested, and over the past 140 years, it turns out that when payout ratios are low, subsequent earnings growth is um, poor. And when payout ratios are high, subsequent earnings growth 
uh, is much improved. So when you have higher dividends, you have higher earnings growth rates. This was subsequently followed by a paper that tested the self-same idea in six economies around the world, found the same relationship in six. And another paper that instead of looking at it intertemporally, as we were, looked at it cross-sectionally and asked the question, do companies with higher payout ratios have faster earnings growth? And the short answer was, yeah, even at the company-specific level. Now, Miller Medigliani tells us that um, capital structure is in some ways irrelevant, doesn't much matter, that uh, whether you finance your growth with dividends or with stock, whether you pay out a lot in dividends and reinvest um, seeking just a very limited roster of growth opportunities or retain it and uh, seek to grow the business faster, uh, it all washes out and your expected sum of income plus growth is pretty much the same no matter what you do uh, in terms of um, dividend policy. Well, that's a nice theory and uh, a nice approximation of the way the world ought to work, but it doesn't stand up to testing. And so uh, one of the things that was fun about this was recognizing that when companies retain a little bit of their earnings, they plow it back into the most important initiatives for their remaining competitive and their growth is good. And if they retain a little bit more, they go to the next lower priority and then the next and then the next and then the next. And pretty soon you're down to some priorities that aren't very important at all and aren't likely to work at all. So you, you wind up empire building rather than shepherding shareholder wealth. One of the startling results in that paper was we also looked at the macroeconomy and asked the question when macroeconomy has high levels of investment in the economy, what happens to subsequent GDP growth? It slows down. Isn't that interesting? To my astonishment, nobody in the economics profession has ever followed up on that finding to look into it and to explore why that might be. Really, that paper was published almost 20 years ago. That's exactly nobody's, right. Nobody's followed up. Nobody's followed up on the economics angle of it, which um, uh, I thought was some of the juiciest results that we got. That is interesting. I, I can't help but wonder, though, about that paper, whether developments uh, in the market since then, such as the prominence of buybacks, affect the result in any way. Have you revisited the research? We have revisited it. We check back on it every three to five years. The relationship still seems to be robust. Buybacks, of course, play a role. But buybacks themselves are a large source of myth-making. A lot of companies announce buybacks and don't do them. A lot of companies engage in buybacks that are merely a guise, uh, a way to disguise uh, management compensation. So the management team wants to redeem uh, stock options, and the company does a buyback of a million shares concurrent with management redeeming a million shares of uh, stock options. That's not a buyback. That is management compensation. The float didn't change at all. Million, million shares was issued, a million shares was bought back, no change in the float. And so there's a lot of myth-making going on in the whole realm of buybacks. Buybacks aren't nearly as big 
as is commonly perceived, aren't nearly as pervasive and net-net across the macroeconomy uh, are rarely, buybacks rarely exceed new share issuance plus IPOs. So in terms of asset allocation, it's another buyback-related question. I notice your asset allocation models don't factor buybacks in. They look at the dividend. Mm-hmm. Is that for this reason that you it find It is for that reason. Once again, the conventional view is if you're engaged in buybacks, um, that's a surrogate dividend. No, buybacks happen. Buybacks are a bull market peak phenomenon. You don't find buybacks occurring when the stock is cheap. You find it happens when the stock is expensive. And on the surface, that would be a complete mystery. Why would people do that? If you're a management team, do you want to redeem your stock options when the stock is cheap? No, you want to redeem and cash out when it's expensive. Do you want to make that an effortless transaction by doing a buyback concurrent with redemption? Of course you do. So it tends to be that buybacks accelerate sharply uh, near economic and market peaks. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that buybacks are are more smoke and mirrors to disguise management remuneration rather than a value-based judgment on the company. Correct. Now, that's not to say there aren't some value-based judgments on on the company, and that's not to say that there aren't some systematic buybacks. Um, Microsoft has been engaged in systematic buybacks for 20 years. Well, Buffett's just announced one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, some of it is systematic. Some of it is valuation-based. In Buffett's case, I think it's partly because he doesn't see that many interesting investment opportunities out there, so he just wants to reduce his own float. It's a high-class problem to have, isn't it? It's a great problem to have, and it's a bull market peak problem to have. Interesting. So we'll move on to the next paper. What risk premium is normal? (laughs) That was a fun paper. The conventional view at the time was stocks have a risk premium of about 5% relative to bonds, 6 or 7% relative to cash, and this was reliable over long periods of time. That view was supported by uh, the Ibbotson and Sinkfield work, which was first published, I think, in 1976, in which they showed that um, the stock market since 1926 had beat bonds by about 5%. And it was revisited three or four years later, still 5%. Ten years later, still 5%. Ten years later, still 5%. So everyone looked at that and thought it was um, uh, a physical uh, constant, much like uh, the speed of light. doesn't vary. Okay. Um, Well, in point of fact, part of what kept it that high was that the stock market from 1976 to 2000 was, with fits and starts, getting richer and richer and richer. And as the pricing soared, it created the illusion that a 5% risk premium was normal. We went back and backed out the performance that was due to rising valuations and then and found that net of that, it was more like 2.5%. We also found that on a forward-looking basis, you could estimate it very, very simply based on yield plus long-term historical norms for growth. And you come up with an average of 2.5%, but sometimes it was as low as zero or lower, and sometimes it was as high as 5%, 7%, 10%. 
coming off of the Great Depression lows, it was north of 10%. So we basically said, look, people need to stop thinking about risk premium based on historical relative performance, but based on forward-looking yield plus growth. And if you do that, you find that the norm is half what most people think. Not only that, but when we published the paper in 02, at that time it was negative. Very interesting. So if we were to run that exercise today, yield plus normalized growth, where would the risk premium be? About two. About two. So it's not out of line with historic norms, with the caveat that both the real return for stocks and the real return for bonds are both abnormally low. So that would lead me to be more cautious than I normally would with a two-risk premium. Okay. Now, one of the things I particularly like about this paper is there was some very interesting work done at the beginning because rather than just compare the historical risk premium, Mm -hmm. rather than just analyze the historical risk premium, I should say, you did a bit of work to figure out what the expected risk premium was likely to have been at the time. Exactly right. Can you explain what you did there? Well, if you go back historically, let's take a random date in the past, 1966, and you ask, okay, with the stock market yielding 3% and with historical norms of growth um, of a little bit over, over 1% above inflation, that gives you a real return expectation of 4 What was the real yield on bonds at the time, well, it was about one and a half. So does that mean you should have expected a 5% risk premium? No, you should reasonably have expected um, about uh, two and a half. And so that very, very simple arithmetic can be repeated historically and prospectively. So basically, it, we went back and said, if you were a rational investor, trying to gauge forward-looking returns instead of focusing on past returns, what might you have assumed as a reasonable uh, real return? Yield plus growth gets you there, and it's a very time-varying number. It's not, it's not a physical constant like speed of light. It moves. Mm-hmm. How often do you think investors should test their risk premium assumptions? Is it something you should be testing monthly, quarterly, annually? Um, we do it on our website. Um, the website that you mentioned, anyone who is listening to the podcast and wants to look for it, um, just go on Google and look for Asset Allocation Interactive. And it's an interactive website that allows you to test your assumptions about forward-looking returns. The whole goal of the website is to shift people's attention from past returns, which everybody knows and which everybody knows is not predictive, to forward-looking expectations of return, not based on extrapolating the past, but based on looking at yield plus growth. So what we find is that Short-term returns are very, very hard to forecast. Long-term returns are not that hard to forecast. So if you're looking at a 10-year or a 20-year forward-looking return, uh, yield plus growth is a great predictor. And you can compare different asset classes and find out which ones are priced today to offer a better forward-looking rate of return. One nuance of that is very simple. There are no bargains 
uh, in the absence of fear. And that fear is usually rooted in a legitimate narrative of things that could go wrong, things that are already going wrong and could get worse. So when you're looking at markets that give you good reason to not invest, that's a common denominator of all bargains. It's also a common denominator of all value traps. But you will never buy a bargain unless you're willing to buy what's out of favor, what's unloved, what's inflicted pain and losses in recent years. So you're not looking to create a portfolio, you're looking to create a kennel is what you're saying. Yes, that's a good way to put it. And we're looking to get people off of this fixation with past returns. Past returns, uh, every prospectus says past returns do not forecast future returns. It says that for a reason. It's true. And yet everyone's involved in performance chasing. Um, if the local department store suddenly posted a sign, big banner sign outside the store saying, new higher prices up 20% from last year. Imagine a world in which people break down the doors to get in and take advantage of these new higher prices. It doesn't happen, except in the stock market. And in the markets, people, if it's newly discounted 20% off from last year, people stay away. They have no interest. But in point of fact, buying what's unloved, what's feared, what has an unpleasant narrative that creates the low prices is often, for the long-term patient investor, a much better way to invest. The challenge is you can't know where the bottom is. So you will almost assuredly buy too soon and look like an idiot until it turns. I think that's where looking at risk premiums is helpful because it is emphasizing that fact that, well, yes, there is a risk. As mm -hmm. you say, often mm -hmm. the risk is there for a very vivid and well-known reason. But you can measure the premium that you're getting paid to assume exactly. that risk and you can see it getting bigger. Yeah, case in point today is uh, emerging markets value stocks are priced. Firstly, the spread between growth and value in emerging markets is the widest ever. Uh, if you look at the 30% most expensive stocks and the 30% cheapest, call that growth and value, normally growth is three and a half times as expensive as value. That's the historic average. Right now, it's five and a half times as expensive. That's very strange and either represents a new normal in which value just isn't worth much or a bargain. And I'm happy to bet rather aggressively that it's a bargain. It's an interesting observation. So third paper, clairvoyant discount rates. Mm. That was part of a three-part series that looked at the general principle of clairvoyance uh, in markets. Now, that's not to say anyone is a clairvoyant. I'm indebted to Bill Sharp for the title of the p series of papers. Um, I was chatting with him and I uh, saying, if you could see the future and know what all of the cash flows are on an investment, go back to 1960 and take with it the knowledge of what IBM's dividend distributions have been ever since then. Create a discounted net present value and compare that with the price in 1960. The uh, price might have been higher or lower, but you have the knowledge of what happened subsequently. There's some very good learnings that can come from comparing prices as they actually were with the prices that would have prevailed if you knew the future cash flows. And his comment was, um, well, that's not 
not an interesting topic. That's just clairvoyance. And I think the label clairvoyance, to me, resonated because what you're doing is you're saying, if I was clairvoyant, what could I learn? What we learned was very, very simple. In the first paper, Clairvoyant Value, we looked at the, if you could see future cash flows and discount them back to today and use the same discount rate for all companies, what you'd find is that the companies that have higher future growth have higher current valuations. The correlation between the premium that a company is priced at in the market and the premium that it truly deserves is a 50% correlation. It's a really, really strong correlation. The market does a great job. The correlation between the premium that the marketplace gives a company and its subsequent IRR is minus 50%. So the market predicts which companies are winners and which companies are losers with remarkable accuracy, and then it overpays for the future winners by about twice as big a margin as it should and over discounts the future losers by about twice the discount that it should. Uh, we also did a paper, uh, Clairvoyance and the Growth Value Cycle, I believe was the name of the paper, in which we noticed that when the spread between growth and value is wider than historic norms, subsequently it mean reverts and vice versa. So that the growth value cycle could be understood in the context of the spread widening and narrowing. The third paper in the series was clairvoyant discount rates, and that's where we looked at what the implied discount rate is for a company if you take its current price as a given and its future distributions as the basis for calculating a discount rate. Now, if you do that, what you find is that the average stock has a return considerably lower than the market. Your market return is driven by a small number, 10, 20% of the market, of outperformers, big outperformers that more than swamp the underperformers. Huge argument against single stock portfolios. And that very same pattern is dramatically stronger in small cap stocks because the volatility, the dispersion of outcomes between the winners and the losers is much wider in small cap. So the small cap stocks beat large cap on average as a portfolio, but as individual stocks, the median small cap stock has worse performance than the median large cap. The small cap effect reverses. So basically the small cap effect with small cap portfolios beating the market over long periods of time is driven by the 2 or 3% superstar winners, the companies that just beat all expectations by a huge margin. Um, fun paper, rich line of inquiry, and again, I've seen no take-up in the marketplace with people looking using that same principle of clairvoyance uh, as a way of better understanding how markets function. I think it would give us some interesting well it would it would pose some interesting questions if we looked at more topics in investing through that lens of clairvoyance. I think so too. It would give us some some very interesting results. Okay, so we'll move on to some more recent papers. 
Now, I was chatting a few months ago with another quant investor. You may know of him. His name is uh, Corey Hofstein. He's based in Boston, uh, runs a firm called Newfound. And we started the podcast talking about the Mount Rushmore of quants. So who would be up there? And there was a few names. Your name was up there. And, and we thought about whether we'd put you next to Cliff Asnes or not. Why not? <laughs> Corey thought it would be a good idea because it would be more fun that way. I, I agree. And the reason I bring that up is because the, the next paper has, has seen you have uh, some, some interesting discussions with, with Cliff and his firm about the conclusions that you've reached. So the paper is, how can smart beta go horribly wrong? Well, firstly, the controversies are kind of one way. I write papers and he attacks them. I stay pretty quiet in all of this because I don't see any upside in quibbling about stuff. But that particular paper, let's suppose I wrote a paper entitled, How Can Stock Picking Go Horribly Wrong? And let's suppose I advanced a thesis. If you take a stock that has soared in price, but its underlying fundamentals haven't, so the valuation has soared, its past returns will look fantastic. And if there's any mean reversion, watch out, its forward returns are going to be terrible. If I wrote that paper, people would look at it and say, this guy's an idiot. Everybody knows that. Making exactly that same thesis about factors and strategies, pointing out that factors can get more expensive and less expensive. And if, they're get, if they've been getting more expensive, their past returns will look artificially large. And if there's any mean reversion, their future returns will disappoint all of a sudden, it's an extremely controversial idea. I don't get it. It seems to me that it's intuitive, uh, and it's a basis for gauging whether particular factors or ideas or strategies, investment strategies, are currently priced to put you into stocks that are more expensive than their historic norm, and therefore, the factor or the strategy is likely to disappoint. Now, this has a bearing today in the multi-factor arena. Multi-factor is hot. People are pouring money into multi-factor strategies. And I have nothing against multi-factor strategies. We offer one ourselves. But people are pouring money in because they're tired of waiting for value to work. Value has been savaged. It's had an 11-year bear market. People are sick and tired of waiting. And they're saying, what can we do? A few false dawns along the way, too. Yes, and the quant community looks at that and says, well, I got an answer for you. Value is only one of many factors. Um, they're all vetted by the academic community. They all work. They just work at different times. And uh, our multi-factor strategy smooths off the rough edges. And because these factors all work, the collective multi-factor strategy gives you very high odds of winning over a three to five year horizon. Hasn't happened, has it? No. I have a big problem with that sales pitch on many, many levels. If we have time, we can dive into that. But right now, what strategy is trading cheap relative to its history? Value. The normal spread between growth and value is 3.5 to 1. When it's less than 3 to 1, history tells us value is a coin toss. It might work. It might not work. You're wasting your time. When it gets above 4 to 1, it works 90% of the time. When it gets above 5 to 1, historically, it has never failed to add value for the patient investor who sticks with it for five years. It's added value every time in every market. Okay, well, that tells me that 
um, when value's cheap, you want to have a value focus. Where is it now? It's cheap. It's four and a half to one. That's wonderful. In emerging markets, it's five and a half to one. What about the other factors? Low volatility is now trading at a premium multiple to high. Low beta stocks are trading at a premium multiple to high beta stocks. With a lot of interest rate risk as well. A lot of interest rate risk. So low beta, which historically has almost always traded at a discount, is now trading at a premium. And people think they have less downside risk with low vol than with the market. I don't think so. I think the downside risk is just as large and the upside opportunity is diminished. So it's asymmetric in the wrong direction. Quality, people are paying a bigger premium than their historic norms. That means that the historical performance is elevated. The historical performance of quality looks better than it really is. And if there's any mean reversion, watch out. Momentum until uh, uh, late summer was saying chase the fang stocks. All right, what do we find historically? Every time momentum has had one of its infamous crashes, it's been preceded by momentum saying chase the bubble stocks. So when it was saying chase the bubble stocks, that's a time to ignore momentum. Small cap trading at a premium to large cap almost all over the world. And so right now, out of those five factors, four of them are trading rich relative to history, one's trading cheap. And you have people saying, get me out of the one that's trading cheap. Let me buy the rest. The other nuance that's interesting is people marketing multi-factors say, don't worry, value is one of our sleeves. It's part of our strategy. So you aren't getting rid of value. You're just diversifying. No, correction. Four of the five factors right now are pushing you in an anti-value direction into stocks that are trading at premium multiples. So almost every single multi-factor strategy in the market today is pushing you into high multiple companies and is priced at a 10 to 20% premium to the market. Is that poised to perform brilliantly? I don't think so. So this is a very rich and fertile area for um, uh, exploration. I'm glad you brought all of that up because I have two questions. So the, the first, I'm going to attempt to channel Cliff here. And this is my very simple summary of his reply to your paper and that is that stocks move in and out of factor portfolios all the time and so the only way that the valuation uh, could go up and the returns could go down was if the same stock say stayed in a factor portfolio and mm -hmm. didn't move in and out mm -hmm. and particularly in the case of, in, of momentum he's saying that's not the case because the the mo high momentum cohort is constantly changing short answer to that is he and i are not in disagreement the, there are high turnover and low turnover factors. Quality is low turnover. The high quality stocks generally stay high quality. The low quality generally stay low quality. So when quality moves to a premium multiple, it often is the same companies. Watch out. Same thing with small cap versus large cap. There's not a lot of migration between the two. To a lesser extent, the same is true of value. The exceptions are low beta, and momentum, where the composition of the portfolio does change fairly substantially over time. So what we found was that those two factors have the weakest linkage between valuation and subsequent five-year return. But when you drill down, the linkage between 
valuation and subsequent one-year return is still robust. So what we find is that when momentum is saying chase these bubble stocks, that's when you're slightly more likely to have a crash in momentum strategies. Um, so I would agree with the observation that the composition changes. I would disagree with the view that that means valuation doesn't matter. It just means that the valuation matters over a shorter window for the high turnover factors. Another question on value. You mentioned that the spread between cheap and expensive is very wide and it's at a level where value traditionally works. So value, there's definitely a, a relative case for value to be made. Lately, I've been quite concerned about the absolute case for value. And the reason why I say that is if you take, for example, the cheapest quintile in the US market, mm -hmm. traditionally that traded on a single digit PE, whereas now the cheapest quintile in the US market, I think, trades around 12, 13 times or roughly 50% higher than it normally does. So yes, value may outperform because growth blows up, but I'm worried whether that performance is going to be that good given that even the starting point for value is quite high. Yeah. Um, I would say if you're going to invest, well, firstly, what you're saying is most particularly true in the U.S. Here in Australia, valuations are much more reasonable, not too far removed from historic norms. And uh, Schiller PE is in the mid-teens. In the U.S., it's in the low 30s. Ouch. It's been higher than today, twice in history. Uh, the two or three year window surrounding the peak of the tech bubble and the two or three month window surrounding the peak of the 29 bubble. Ouch, that's not good company to be keeping. Value is cheaper than the market in the US by a wider margin than historic norms, but is not cheap. So am I urging customers to pile into fundamental index in the U.S. No, I'm urging them, if they must invest in the U.S., have a defensive stance, use value. And um, multi-factor, sure, it's interesting, uh, but don't pull money from value to put it into multi-factor. You're taking it from the only thing that's remotely cheap, and it's not all that cheap. In uh, developed economies outside the U.S., especially countries like U.K. and Australia, values pretty darn cheap, even in absolute terms. And in emerging markets, it is definitely cheap. Uh, the fundamental index in emerging markets is currently priced at 9.5 Schiller P.E. Uh, if you can buy half the world's GDP for 9.5 times earnings, you don't pose the question, gee... Uh, what could go wrong, you pose the question, how much can I comfortably put into this and bear with whatever volatility is coming and leave enough dry powder to average in and buy more if it gets cheaper? Mm -hmm. So moving on to the next paper, and this is related to this idea of factor valuations changing over time, and that's timing smart beta strategies, of course, buy low, sell high. And this, I find this paper interesting because I've had this debate with many uh, quantitative investors. Mm -hmm. in, one of the roles I've held in my career is to be an investment strategist across uh, various asset classes. And I've 
at times, I think it makes sense to vary your allocation to those strategy to those asset classes mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on your forward-looking views. And to me, it makes lo- a logical sense that you would do the same thing with your allocations to factors. Mm-hmm. However, whenever I mention that idea to most quants, they recoil. They start throwing back statistics of, oh, well, you know, unless you have a hit rate of 70 to 80% on your asset allocation calls, you're worse off giving up the diversification benefit that you have if you're in a multi-factor approach and a whole lot of stuff. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on this paper and why you think most of the, the quantitative investment industry is so against timing of any sort, asset sure, classes or sure. factors. Well, here again, um, uh, Cliff was critical of that paper, but he and I agree for the most part. We disagree at the margin. And if factors are priced reasonably close to historic norms, why waste your time? Why waste your trading cost budget making bets on weak signals? If you get a factor that is priced in the top or bottom quintile of historic norms, then you've got something worth making a bet on. If it's in the top or bottom decile, then you've got a basis for making a pretty big bet. And you still have to be patient. It's not going to work right away. If you buy what's cheap, the chances of you buying on the bottom tick are slim to none. And if you buy early, you're going to look like an idiot until it turns. You have to be ready to accept the fact that you're going to look like an idiot for a while. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Uh, Cliff acknowledges that if you limit your active bets to the outer quintiles of the distribution, then making some bets makes some sense. Now, the proof of the pudding for us was a really simple thought experiment. Suppose... I went on a magic carpet back in time and gave somebody 40 years ago a list of eight factors, eight of the most popular factors in use today. And I tell this person 40 years ago, look, these factors are going to be discovered in the next 40 years. And the fact that they're discovered, the fact that they're published means that they work in the next 40 years. I don't, know, I don't know if they work beyond the next 40 years, but in the next 40 years, they're going to work. So feel free to use them in any way you like. Um, one money manager looks at that and uh, says, okay, I like this idea. I don't know which is going to work best. I'll just equal weight them. All right, that gives you 2.4% value add per annum. Not bad. It's not the 6% people like to think they're getting from factors, but uh, it's, it's a decent return. Another says, I'm going to be a little more clever about this. I'm going to look at these factors, and I'm going to see which ones have the best performance over the last one, three, five, and ten years, using a blend. Let's be sophisticated and average the four Z-scores and um, use that as a basis. I'm going to just choose the three that have the best results, and those are going to be the better factors. Bingo, your alpha went from 2.4 to 1.2. Let's suppose you go to um, third money manager, and the third money manager says, I don't know which is going to perform best, but I can compare its valuation with its own historic norms. Now, every factor has a valuation, the long portfolio versus the short portfolio. If it's value, the long portfolio is cheaper. 
always cheaper. But the magnitude that it's cheaper varies. And so I'm going to look at all eight factors. I'm going to see which three are trading cheapest relative to their own history. And I'll use those three factors. Now the alpha goes from 2.4 to 6. It more than doubles. So those who say factor timing doesn't work just have not done their homework. Yes, it works. Yes, it adds to your tracking error. So it must be done judiciously. And yes, if you've got outliers, extremes of valuation, you can use that information, you should use that information in a prudent, well-diversified way. So given that the potential benefits are so large, why do you think there's so much reticence to give it a go? Uh, I think it's, uh, well, it gets back to how can smart beta go horribly wrong? The notion that how can stock picking go horribly wrong? Don't buy what's newly soared. Well, the notion that academia has been guilty of data mining and identifying the factors with the best performance historically without ever asking the question, how much of my historical performance came from rising valuations is to me deeply disturbing. It means that uh, academics are forgetting that um, when you're investing in factors, you, you don't buy the factor, you buy the assets. You're buying businesses. And in so doing, businesses can get expensive or cheap, and so can factors. So there's a reticence to acknowledge that factors or strategies can get overpriced. I don't get it, but I think it goes hand in glove with what we talked about earlier, that if you challenge conventional wisdom with an idea that is contrary to that conventional wisdom, people who've built a career based on that conventional wisdom are going to be pissed off. I think that's an interesting nuance that you brought out there, that in a sense, the way people treat factors is almost as if they're divorced from the underlying companies. This is, I think, one of the big failings of the quant community. We view everything as a signal instead of viewing it as an asset. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So coming back to something that you said earlier about timing, you mentioned the importance of waiting to, till you have an extreme because the power of that signal is much stronger. Say you get an extreme valuation signal for a particular factor. How do you think about position sizing? So obviously the more extreme, the larger the position, but should people be taking 1% or 2% bets or should they not be taking plus or minus 20% bets? Or How do you think about that sizing question? It's hard to think of it in terms of percentage allocations because an allocation to a broadly diversified factor strategy um, doesn't involve nearly as much tracking error risk as an investment in a single stock that's an extreme outlier. Um, so I think of it more in terms of look at history, look at the dispersion of historical returns, and ask yourself, how big a bet am I willing to make that won't prompt me or my investment committee or my client to second-guess the decision in the face of um, a couple of bad years back-to-back. -back. Because no matter who you are, no matter what your strategy, you're going to have a couple of bad years back-to-back -back somewhere along the way. And when that happens, you don't want to be out there with a bet large enough 
that it invites second-guessing because if you do that, you're not doing anyone any favors. Your, your customer is not helped by using a brilliant strategy where they're going to pull the plug at exactly the wrong moment. So you want to scale your bets to a size where you could stand two bad years back-to-back. If you do that, you're probably pretty good. That's great advice. I, I like the fact that you start with investor psychology and what they can live with and work from there rather than trying to optimize or maximize necessarily. Yeah. This is not a quantitative so. puzzle that can be lends itself to a uh, mean variance optimizer. <laughs> Human psyches don't operate on mean variance optimizers. Ain't that the truth? So our, our third and final recent paper, and I think this is an underappreciated area. It doesn't get enough conversation, enough uh, discussion. And that is, is your alpha big enough to cover its taxes? Yeah. This was a paper I wrote back in uh, 1993 with a fellow named Tad Jeffrey, uh, Robert Jeffrey. Um, and uh, he was actually the lead author. Um, he was a um, brilliant guy, wonderful guy, who uh, had this uh, elegant long-term perspective. Um uh, uh, he was manager of um, his own family office and viewed his job as being one of maximizing the what he called portfolio fecundity, the sustainable spending that the portfolio could produce in real terms over many years. And this angered many of the um, um, beneficiaries of the family trust because he was putting them on a diet of spending maybe 2 2.5% of uh, portfolio value per year, and they just wanted to spend it all. Um, but he was intensely sensitive to uh, after-tax returns. Now, this was before there was tax-aware investing. That's not to say people weren't aware that taxes matter, but there weren't systematic loss harvesting strategies or lot selection strategies and so we just did a very simple test in which we showed that uh, of something like 80 mutual funds that had a 10-year history and were at least $100 million at the start and the end of the 10 years, how many of them beat the market net of fees and trading costs? About 25%. How many beat it net of taxes? Three funds. Three out of 80. Yes. Okay. Well, that's a little disturbing. So uh, that paper sent out some shockwaves. There's one organization, Parametric Investing, that actually built a major business on tax-aware investing, informed in part by that research. Uh, Chuck Schwab also liked the paper enough to send a copy of the paper to 25,000 of his closest friends. Anyway, uh, we decided after a quarter century to do a retrospective look back at that and ask what's changed. And what's not changed is most investors still put taxes to back burner. So they're willing to devote a lot of resources and a lot of effort in the quest for a very uncertain pre-tax alpha. Well, it's fun. It's sexy. Isn't right. It? Yeah. And very little attention to a manageable, controllable, and assured tax alpha from managing the tax consequences. So you have this certain alpha if you're carefully managing taxes. You can assuredly improve your tax picture, and you might 
improve your alpha picture. The energy all goes to the the maybe side of the equation with very little attention to the absolutely assured side of the equation. So we also looked at what has changed, and what has changed is that there are hundreds of billions at least invested in tax-aware strategies. Cool. Loss harvesting, lot selection, comparing across multiple strategies and choosing the lot from manager A to sell in manager B's portfolio if it's a more tax-advantaged trade. That kind of thing is all out there. It's not used as heavily as it should be, but it's out there. The other thing that's changed is uh, ETFs. Interestingly, the first ETF was launched in 93, right when we wrote that paper. And ETFs create a tax-advantaged portfolio. So when we look at mutual funds, indexed mutual funds have pre-tax returns that match the market and after-tax returns that fall a little bit short. ETFs have pre-tax returns that match the market and after-tax returns that match the market. Cool. So the average mutual fund gives up about 70 basis points in taxes, 160 basis points if it's an active mutual fund, and the average ETF gives up less than a tenth of a percent in taxes. That is probably the single most important change in the last quarter century. Mutual funds could capture the same benefit. They would have to allow for in-kind construction and in-kind distributions as happen in the ETF arena in order for it to work. It's really interesting. And I guess it just highlights uh, once again why, as a vehicle, ETFs are in many ways an improvement over mutual funds. Not, not in theory, because an ETF is a mutual fund. Um, the difference is intraday trading, which has nothing to do with tax-aware investing, and the uh, creation units and distribution units that are used to add assets or reduce assets in the fund – that can be done in mutual funds. It just isn't. If it was done in mutual funds, mutual funds could be just as tax advantage, but they're not. So we've we've gone through six great papers, three classics, three new ones. Thank you very much for that. Let me just put in a plug for one additional paper. Journal of Portfolio Management is creating a new journal. I think it's called the Journal of um, Financial uh, Data. Um, or financial data science, which it has as its first edition uh, uh, coming out in December. And I wrote a paper with Cam Harvey and Harry Markowitz, which I think is going to be the lead paper in the journal, entitled A Protocol for Data Mining in Machine Learning. And basically what it does is provide a checklist for how you can screw yourself up with quantitative methods. And if you go through that checklist and avoid all 23 pitfalls that we identify, the chances are you're going to have a successful product. Most people are not going to follow that checklist. I think you've read my mind because that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask for some pointers on how to spot bad quantitative research. <laughs> Sounds like you've done all the work for me. There are so many. I won't go through the list of 23, but just just a few examples. Um, 
the whole notion that a back test is a good representation of how well you should expect to do is naive and dangerous. There are good back tests and there are bad back tests. Firstly, data mining is not inherently evil. Research, any research, is data mining. But that doesn't mean that any data mining is research. If you take, well, let's take as an example when we first introduced the idea of fundamental index. We had an extremely simple idea. Instead of weighting companies by market cap, let's weight them by the size of the business. Now you go back and you test, how does it work if you weight a portfolio based on company sales? 2% value add over the last prior 40 years. Cool. That's not aggressive data mining. That's just checking a concept. If you're checking a concept on history, that's perfectly legitimate research. If you then go back, as we did in our early days of Fundamental Index, we, we came up with the notion, why don't we have an enhanced version? Why don't we go back and put more emphasis on the fundamental size of the business that had produced the best historical performance because we can make a better fundamental index. Lo and behold, it worked 30 basis points a year less well. We were inadvertently performance chasing without even realizing it. The whole quant community is engaged in an exercise of performance chasing without even realizing it for the most part. So this is, this is one of the real dangers in quantitative investing is to assume past is prologue. Start with a principle. Start with a hypothesis. Test the hypothesis. Do not go back to the same data again and again and again and try to tweak the process. That's a sure path to a better back test and a worse live experience. Um, um, I would say that's probably the most important uh, if, if somebody comes to you and says, here's a great back test, please invest, uh, that's already a bit of a red flag. But if they say, I've tweaked this thoroughly and I've constructed the best possible permutation of this, that's a massive red flag. Be wary of quants who forget that they're investing in financial assets in slices of a business and who think of it as a signal that just needs quantitative processing. Uh, machine learning may be useful for uh, tick data and intraday timing. It's going to be useless for long horizon investing. Why? Because there's not enough data. That's a very interesting observation of the, the limitations of data on the techniques that you can use. Yeah. And I, I've, I've often thought that when I read a lot of quant research, and I, I see the conclusion and I, I sort of I think about it and I say to myself, well, this is actually more a statement about the data and the limitations of it than rather rather than whether or not this is possible. Because, yeah, and I, and I guess that's one of the reasons why I, I find it hard sometimes to agree with all of the quants that say you can't time markets. It's because that's a question where the data is r really limited. Can you time markets? Yes. Can you screw yourself up by betting too aggressively on a weak signal. Yes. So make small bets when the signal is weak, make larger bets when the signal is strong, and never make a bet that's larger than you can tolerate a couple of years of disappointment. It's very hard to test that because those strong signals maybe happen once or twice in a decade. Uh, or less. 
or no, less. And I think that's partly why a lot of quants are uncomfortable recommending it. But if you're looking at signals across multiple asset classes and across multiple models, uh, at any given time, you're likely to find um, at least one top or bottom decile opportunity. Um, today, the bottom decile opportunity is that value stocks in emerging markets are really cheap and growth stocks in emerging markets, the 10 cents and the Baidu's of the world, are really expensive. And that spread is uh, way into the widest decile ever. Okay, well, that's a good time to step forward and say, I'm happy to bet a certain chunk of my net worth on mean reversion in this particular domain. But no, I'm not happy to bet everything on it because um, nothing is certain. Okay, a couple of quick questions about quantitative techniques because you, you raised the topic. How and when should a quant change their model? A quant should always be doing research to try to identify um, new ideas and ways to improve what they're doing. But they need to be very, very careful to not engage in performance chasing. We all rail against performance chasing, and yet it is so easy to inadvertently fall into the trap of performance chasing. I did it myself when I was looking at Enhanced Raffi uh, in the early days, and I was so pissed off that this great idea was eroding the performance. Well, now I understand I was engaged in performance chasing. Uh, the same thing happened with the quant crash. People were piling into more and more aggressive bets on factors that were getting more and more expensive, and lo and behold, uh, the, the quant crash of August of 07 happened, uh, not because... Um, quantitative methods failed, but because the factors that people were relying on all got to be crowded space, expensive space, and gave up about a year's worth of alpha in a, in a few short days. And people had leveraged up their bets to an extent that led in some cases to, well, there was one fund that lost 40% of its value in three days. So Quantitative methods are enormously powerful, but they're also, it, it's like building a new road and using, using dynamite to clear the, the path. If you use dynamite sensibly, it's a powerful tool. If you use it carelessly, you're going to die. Quantitative methods, if you use them sensibly and properly, they're a powerful tool. If you use them carefully, carelessly, your wealth is going to die. I think that's the, the difficulty for a lot of non-quants, though, is it's hard to spot when they're being used carelessly. There are some simple principles. Um, one, does the quant have some core beliefs? Do they have some views as to how markets work? Two, do they aggressively data mine and tweak, or do they look for core principles and test them? Three, do they realize that they're investing in financial assets or do they think they're chasing signals? Four, do they pay attention to the niceties of implementation or do they just create a model portfolio and think it's going to work? Case in point, momentum since the financial crisis from 2010 onward has performed beautifully. It's had about a 5% annualized return. The momentum funds that are out there, the funds that purport to manage using a pure momentum strategy 
almost without exception have underperformed the market since 2010 when momentum's been working. How on earth can that be? If momentum's adding 5% and you're losing 1% or 2% a year relative to the market, where's that slippage? Well, it's trading costs. And it's thinking that you can capture the paper portfolio without any cost. You can't. Very interesting. So one final question, and then we've got to let you get out to your uh, next meeting. From your perch as uh, chairman of research affiliates, you get to see a lot of what's happening in the asset management industry. What do you think the future of the industry looks like with all of these <laughs> things? We have robo-advice, zero-cost oh, ETFs. I thought this last quarter century was fascinating. I think the next quarter century is going to be jarring, disruptive, and uh, for the curious, even more fascinating, the notion of zero fees. Uh, how do you make money with zero fees? Uh, Fidelity just launched the first mutual funds ever with zero fee and zero minimum investment. You can put $1 into their fund, and that's just totally fine, and the fee will be zero. Uh, okay, is Fidelity an iliomocenary institution looking to provide charitable benefits to the world? I don't think so. Last I checked, they had a profit motive. So how are they making money on a zero fee? Study the question, and you pretty quickly come up with answers of how they make money. So the financial services community is going to have to come to grips with a world in which objectively measurable costs and fees are fast headed to zero. Hidden costs and fees, not so much. And is going to have to come to grips with the notion of radical transparency. Uh, the notion of making portfolios and strategies available on the internet. Think in terms of not an exchange traded fund, but an internet traded fund where you can buy, um, put $30 into a long, short, multi-factor strategy on the internet with the click of a mouse and uh, do it for zero fee and zero objective measured trading costs. Now, how does a money manager profit in that world? So I think we're going to see radical change in the years ahead that are going to force a major rethink of how each and every one of us does business. Uh, I think it's going to be fun. I think so too. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, Rob. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This was great fun. I love the diversity of questions and uh, the uh, playful exploration of a lot of interesting ideas. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.